0: welcome to new books in the indian ocean world a podcast channel on the new books network this podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive indian ocean to learn about its past and present thank you for joining me today i'm your host ahmed al-mazmi a phd candidate at princeton university today we are here to talk about the volume histories of health and materiality in the indian ocean world Medicine, Material Culture and Trade between 1600 to 2000, published by Bloomsbury in 2023. And here we have uh, one of the co-editors, Professor Anne uh, Gristen, who is a Professor of History at the University of Warwick in the UK and Chair of Asian Art at the University of Leiden uh, in the Netherlands. At, uh, she, uh, at Warwick, she co-directs the Global History and Culture Center. The volume uh, is also co-edited by Professor uh, Burton Cletus, who is an assistant professor of history at Jawaharlal Nehru University in India, where he teaches modern Indian history. He specializes in the history of medicine and science and has worked on the institutionalization of Indian medical traditions in colonial and post-independent India. Welcome, Professor and uh, to new books in the Indian Ocean world. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about the book today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted. Thank you. My honor. So
0: the the volume histories of health and materiality in the Indian Ocean world introduces materiality into the study of the history of medicine. This volume hones in on communities across Indian Ocean world and explores how they understood and engaged with health and medical commodities. Opening up spatial dimensions and challenging existing approaches to knowledge, power, and the market, it defines therapeutic commodity and explores how different materials were understood and engaged with in various settings, and for a number of purposes. Offering new spatial realms within which the circulation of commodities created new regimes of meaning, histories of health and materiality in the Indian Ocean world demonstrates how medicinal substances have had immediate and far-reaching economic and political consequences in various capacities, from midwifery and umbilical cords to the social spaces of soap and perfumes in early modern India and remedies for leprosy. This volume considers a vast range of material culture and medicinal settings to better understand the history of medicine and its role in global connections since the early 17th century to the present century. We would like first, before we delve into the book, to learn about uh, yourself, if you can share a few words about uh where you were born, uh, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you would like to mention any mentors you had along the way.
1: Thank you, sure. Yeah, so I grew up in the Netherlands. My name, Anna Khegertsen, maybe suggests that already, and I went to school uh, in the Netherlands, and I went to the kind of school where you um, had to do a lot of different languages, and I enjoyed languages, or in fact, I was only good at languages. I wasn't good at anything else. So I did six languages and history in my final exam year. And uh, when I went to the States, um, I then decided to, to do my to do just a year of undergraduate study there. I added uh, Chinese and Japanese. Um, and so I rolled into area studies, and I did then Chinese at Leiden University, or Chinese Languages and Civilizations, as it was called then, Um, uh, from an interest of of the language Um, and area studies gave me an opportunity to learn everything to do with China Um, and I want to come back to that a bit later on but area studies as a kind of subject is quite interesting to me Um, it's quite different from uh, the discipline that I work in now but anyway so I did uh, Chinese studies at uh, my undergraduate which in the Netherlands then also involved an MA degree and then I went to the States to do a PhD and that was also uh, in area studies so I went to Harvard and I went to the East Asian Languages and Civilizations Department And I studied um, early modern Chinese. I mean, it wasn't called early modern there. It was called Song Dynasty and Song Yuan Ming was the topic of my PhD as a time period, which is about the 10th century up to maybe uh, 1650, roughly speaking. Um, And all my expertise really and my academic conversations were with other China specialists. Um, I moved to the UK after that and, um, by luck for me, I guess, uh, I was, uh, able to secure an appointment in a history department because that history department, which is the University of Warwick, where I still teach today, was quite interested in having people with area expertise. It's a little bit unusual. And when I got that job, which was in 2001, I know that's a very, very long time ago, um, I was lucky enough that the department had lots of historians, but it also recognized the significance of linguistic skills. So it had also other area experts who worked on India and um, Uh, including, for example, at the time, David Hardeman. And um, I joined as a China specialist and I taught early modern China. Um, But you mentioned uh, the Global History Center. I'm actually no longer the director, Guido van Meersbergen, another Dutch colleague, is now the director. Um, But um, we established the Global History Center in 2007. And... Uh, It was an attempt then to try and and make the field of history, particularly in the UK, but it tapped into interests in other parts of the world, uh, more global, meaning crossing boundaries, doing away with the very conventional um, limitations set by area. Um, And that was a trend that was quite broad. I mean, there was interest in it in part because, for example, the publication of um uh various various books actually i mean uh there are you know the standard books that we always hear about that are sort of formative uh in in global history but the interest in the Warwick History Department was really in trying to bring together people who work on India, people who work on China, people who work on Latin America, people who work on different time periods, and so not necessarily just a focus on globalisation and a kind of, um, you know, late twentieth century interest in what happens to institutions and powerful, uh, um, you know, organisations and commercial. Uh, development. So it it had an interest in the early modern. And because of the people who were involved in it, uh, and that included Maxine Berg and Giorgio Riello as some of my closest colleagues, but also by then the University of. Uh, Warwick had hired David Arnold, another great um, South Asian specialist from SOAS to come and join the history department. And together we had quite a strong interest in both uh, colonial and post-colonial worlds and in material culture. And all of these things, uh, and we'll come back to that in a moment, I'm sure, tie into what this volume has become. So that interest in material culture for me personally, in terms of my scholarly development, uh was initially focused mostly on China. And I published um, I published my PhD book, which was on Song Yuan Ming. Um Uh, religion and local culture and my second book uh, which came out only fairly recently uh, in 2020 the city of blue and white focused on porcelain and the global trade in porcelain so these strands are all part of what this book is partly an interest in area studies and knowing the area well through linguistic skills, but also looking beyond the boundaries of the area, having an interest in the the structures of power, um, you know, of course, Uh, politics and uh, imperial and colonial structures that shape life but looking also at material culture and trade and across the early modern modern boundary Uh, and I think those are all themes that are part of my interest our research interests at Warwick uh, our particular type of global history that we do at the University of Warwick continue to do in different ways um, and part of what this volume has become so that's, to my mind, a little bit of the sort of background of who I am and where I came from. Thank you for
0: sharing that. Uh, uh, I've noticed recently there is a growing interest in bringing uh, materialism and material culture uh, to the study of the Indian Ocean world. Works such as by scholars as uh, Elizabeth Lambert or Nancy Ohm uh, brought these methods uh, into reading uh, different sorts of sources, whether they are the objects themselves or how they are uh, contextualized uh, in historical texts. In your case, you've worked on China, as you've mentioned, and its material culture. And in this volume, uh, you bring in uh, the material, uh, uh, or the material culture to the study of health and medicine uh, in the Indian Ocean world. in your opinion, as you discuss in your introduction with uh, Professor B- uh, Burton Cletus, uh, what are the rewards of uh, bringing such a method uh, and field of study to other fields such as health and medicine?
1: Yeah, very good question. I mean, what are the rewards? I think the rewards are that you tap into a different set of sources, as you already said. And I think Elizabeth Lamborn and, and Nancy Elmer are, are excellent examples of doing just that for the field of history. I mean, art history and history are then often quite closely tied in together. But I think they so the, the main reward is that it adds a set of materials which are not necessarily as connected to the conventional sources that we know. So, you know, for particularly for the early modern period, the, the East India companies, the kind of European colonial presence, we, we know their presence, we know their role. But looking at materials, I think, so objects, the objects themselves, or the documents that are associated with those objects, um, I think what it allows us to do is to add a different set of agents and actors into the picture and um and i think objects i mean that's worth discussing if this time or to think about for listeners whether objects have agency and i think it's worth considering and taking that seriously um but i think it also adds different geographies so the spaces that we conventionally look at at the sources that we're very familiar with um tie us into pre-established or or established, in fact, through those very sources, um, political boundaries, limitations, uh, borders of one kind or another, whether these are cultural or human or um, political, I think the objects have different geographies. They travel in different ways. They push through different boundaries. They have different temporalities because the histories of objects remain kind of inscribed on them in a different way from how a document also, of course, has chronological layers attached to it. But most people who read an object read the text and then tie that into where that text originated. Whereas with an object, you can't just look at where it originated or where it was manufactured. You have to follow its traces. You have to, as the way labor historians call it, or you have to look at its biography, as uh, object historians have often drawn on anthropologists' work, of course, including Apadurai. But it opens up different uh, trajectories, and those are part of the story of the object and therefore allow us to tell different stories. And I think. History has been doing that for a longer time than the field of medicine or the historians of medicine. I think they have been uh, interested. I mean, I'm not suggesting that no one has ever looked at material culture in the field of the history of medic- medicine, particularly in the kind of you know, colonial exploits that include plants and animals. Um, of course, um, people have looked at the natural world and that ties in with science and technology, sure. But I think taking a material culture approach allows you to also zoom into not just generic plants or types or ob- types of objects, but into individual objects, a specific desk or a specific um you know, ceramic pot that held medicinal substances or, you know, things like that. So it opens up, I think, different, to different actors, different sources, different spatial connections. And and that's an important dimension to me because I think it also opens up the Indian ocean to some extent, but anyway, that may be uh, getting ahead of myself a bit there, but those would, I would say the rewards of um, bringing in material culture.
0: Excellent. So, Uh, The edited volume is uh, divided into 13 chapters, including the introduction. Uh, I would like to know how did this volume come about? What was the impetus for it and the organizational work that the editors have undertaken?
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, it's a long history, and I talk a little bit about that in in various places in the volume, Um, not least, of course, because of uh, COVID. But it started, actually... Um, quite a long i had a quite a long trajectory it started with some funding from the welcome which funds of course a lot of activities in the field of the history of medicine uh, and medical humanities and I initially set out when I when I applied for that funding to try and think about the connections between India and China. And I really wanted to bring together a kind of South-South connected story that brought scholars who work on China and scholars who work uh, within the Indian Ocean and particularly in South Asia together in conversation to think about how medical substances were traded within that world so trying both to expand the indian ocean world which often has very specific broad but still quite specific geographies and the scholars who work on china who are equally limited within a very specific spatial realm um, and while uh, i was very pleased again it was only seed funding it was enough for two workshops um and uh, three, actually, we also had a final one in the UK, but just because of practicalities and 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 different aspects of it, we ended up having one in China and one in in India at JNU in Delhi, and the group of people who invo- got involved in both of those um, were basically not so much talking to each other, but still quite focused on. You know, one group of China scholars, and that's a different volume that's coming out separately, and one group uh, of scholars who are still largely focused on the Indian Ocean world, which is why that's also ended up in the title. And some of that ambition that I originally had, I just had to let go. But there are still traces in the volume of that attempt to open it up more broadly and not to just think of an Indian Ocean uh, world dominated by very specific groups in indeed india and and europe as as it's often um conceived so the traces in the volume that show an attempt at opening up the Indian ocean world more broadly so the organizational work that you asked us about uh, Burton and I set out to try and be as inclusive as we could of all the participants at the workshop not every single person was able to contribute but quite a lot of the papers that we had selected for uh, being presented there uh, did find their way in their volume and I say that partly because we ended up working with quite a few um, very early career scholars or even still PhD students, um, which was, you know, joyful and, and, and really exciting to do. But during COVID specifically, that slowed things down quite significantly because when everything was extraordinarily difficult for PhD students, particularly students who... I would have felt, I don't know how you feel about that, had an even tougher trajectory than most, having to do work in a limited amount of time and having to make do with the possibilities they had. So covid Undoubtedly made this somewhat more challenging, but we did, I feel, put together a volume that uh, showed the range, and we tried to then organise those papers somewhat chronologically. And um, I think you can see that for some, uh, this was really something that that responded well to this idea of, you know, take material culture, draw on material culture as a methodology, and bring it into the history of medicine, and others. Um, took a very broad view of what that material culture methodology might be or actually really focused on their own world and try to open it up and, and look beyond and trace some of these substances and some of these ideas even uh, beyond that. Um, so, so the end result that you see before you has, I think, Faces of all of those histories, as as all volumes always do. They have they, you know they they are different from a from a monograph in that sense that it's just one person's trajectory. I think you see here you now how about you know twelve people or so struggled with very particular circumstances, um, and I'm just very pleased at the wide range that we are able to present in the volume here.
0: Right, and it really shows in uh, covering such a vast period and geography which uh, allows the the researcher uh, to explore different areas uh, uh, in the Indian Ocean world, whether thinking about circulation or market integration or consumption uh, of certain medical uh, substances and commodities. Um, In these chapters, uh, what are the deployed methods and approaches in integrating material culture into the study of health and medicine?
1: Yeah, good question. So, for me, um, the material culture approach uh, is one that says an object isn't one thing and isn't in a kind of essentialized and static entity, but something that changes over time. So, it's something you need to contextualize and you need to think about how and why it gets defined in a certain way or gets given meaning in a certain way. Um, and I think uh, if you do that, over time and space, then that alone is already quite a challenging um, exercise. I try to grapple with that in my chapter on rhubarb. But if you look at several of the studies that take an individual uh, medical substance or something like what, what Amrita uh, Chattopadhyay does with perfumes. You know, it's, it's trying to say this is not something that at the outset we already know what it is and we're going to follow its traces, but instead we say who is defining it in that particular way? Yeah. Take Chalmugra, for example, um, or any of the Ayurvedic drugs. And, and how does it actually get defined? And for what reason does it matter for people to define it in that way? And when I say people, I mean also institutions. And when you look at that across time, you see that institutions pop up, especially in the kind of 19th and 20th century, with their own interests and agendas to define these substances in a very particular way and then it can bring to light um very interesting power relationships between who gets to define a medical substance who gets to say this is what it is this is how it works and this is the the Element of that substance that we want to capture for our own purposes and who gets to say whether we can or not, and that brings then to light all of those who have something at stake, and that includes often um, the local population who have a kind of uh, knowledge accumulated over a very long time, but not necessarily. Not necessarily, although sometimes it is codified knowledge or legally protected knowledge. And then, of course, in quite a lot of these stories, there are the colonial agents in some way or another trying to capture the benefit for it, especially, as you said, in that commercial dimension, when there are substances that are, you know, possibly money making substances. But of course, those who take it into a more even more contemporary element, and I'm thinking, for example, by of the chapter by Kaushiki Das, uh, which talks about bio uh, bioprospecting, biopiracy, bioresources. It's not just the the colonial agents and the uh, local population and the indigenous knowledge that is at stake here it's also the state government it's the various institutions that try and codify these substances it's commercial companies it's commercial companies based in 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 the west let's say but multinational quite often it's also indian national institutions and indian government state government national government that all try to get in on the act and it's the conflict that arises over that which at heart is a conflict over ownership possession and therefore relies on on methods of defining um those substances that 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 come to the surface in that way so i think in each of the cases we have material culture as a kind of method but material culture doesn't exist in a kind of void and I mean, not to be denigrating about art historians, of course, their art historians work in very sophisticated ways with material culture. But I think when historians work with material culture, they, they the set of necessity have to apply other kind of methods, and those are methods of you know understanding power look at power structures looking at institutional history looking at different forms of agency looking at legal conflict looking at the history of medicine in the way that historical historically medicinal substances are defined and codified and protected and change over time or adjusted in terms of their workings so i think it's not a a, material culture is not a method that stands in isolation here it is used really as a methodological approach that enhances and opens up and reveals different aspects of the methodologies that historians conventionally use including those of imperial and colonial history of global history of exploitations history that draw Quite a few of the, the volumes also draw on anthropology, anthropological methods. Um, so I think it's a kind of web or network of methods in which um, material culture stands at the center and ties in with all of the other methods that uh, historians working on the Indian Ocean uh, are familiar with. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: In reading the chapters, we encounter a different set of sources ranging from indigenous sources to colonial sources uh, covering uh, this this period. So I was wondering whether we observe different attitudes uh, and conceptualization of medical substances and health that really sets apart the indigenous versus the colonial and whether they are uh, intersection intersections at some points when it comes to, let's say, um, commodifying and valuing uh, medicinal substances, or or bioprospecting happens to be a uniquely colonial, uh, let's say, phenomenon. So if you can compare and contrast how the indigenous versus the colonial uh, have conceptualized and treated uh, medical substances and viewed health.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And I think putting it as the two of them at odds with each other. So indigenous knowledge and indigenous medicinal substances and the colonial world, then I think it creates a binary. That's both sort of comforting and, and, and familiar and, too simplistic and i think quite a few of the chapters um show that it it is a more complicated story where both are implicated in different ways and and that's you know challenging um but also makes it more interesting so i think the agents are not as um set on a binary of indigenous and um colonial and not as Uh, on a binary of colonial and modernizing or modernizing taking the role entirely of the colonial enterprise um, from let's say indigenous sources and i think that comes through in quite a lot of the chapters so for example uh, Burton cletus's chapter talks about the circulation of ayurvedic drugs it talks really about um migrants who deal with problems that come to the service specifically when they have been moved forcefully to new areas to work and where they are now working under a colonial regime and the the what is interesting is that of course they face a whole range of medical challenges and these are medical challenges that we in contemporary language would identify as both somatic but also uh, mental health related and they seek solutions for that across the board so they do they are exposed to medicine That's part of the new region that they have moved into and where they are providing this enforced labor. They also write letters back home to say, how do I deal with these problems? And the exchange of letters forms the body of sources that uh, Burton is working with. But it shows that they are not easily, the the migrant workers who write these letters and the Vaidan who's returning the letters, not as simply defined as saying, you know, this is the this is your indigenous medicinal uh, practice and this is what you must use. Um, The reality is that it has to become some kind of blend, some kind of adaptation to um, the local world. And something comes out of that and is more blended and more, more hybrid, if you will. And I think that same kind of story of complex relationships that are not as easily separated into one and the other actually appears in quite a few of the sources. So Malavika Bini's article, I think, crosses that boundary. I think my story on rhubarb does. Um, I think David Arnold's chapter on toxic trading also shows in different contexts that indigenous knowledge and indigenous ways of thinking about what is a health providing uh, substance and what is. A dangerous or poisonous or toxic substance is is mediated by the context and jane buckingham's chapter on chalmugra also shows that it none of these substances are um static as i said right at the start so if you take a substance from one place and move it somewhere else um whether that is into a colonial world or into um you know a, a contemporary multinational world that substance changes that substance no longer has all of the context attached to it and becomes something different has to be thought of as something different and no longer is you know something pure or original i think those meaning those words are somewhat meaningless so looking precisely at the ways in which those connections get blurred those identities get more layered, more complex, more challenging to identify between, let's say, the indigenous and the colonial uh, 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 colonial exploiter of those substances, or also, um, you know, those who uh, want to capture the commercial benefit over the course of the 20th century. Different agents are involved and each of them try to identify what the substance is and uh, capture the medicinal benefits of it. but struggle to do so entirely on their own terms. They have to negotiate with some of those other meanings that are attached to the object. And I think what your question beautifully lends itself to is to point to why material culture and the the kind of technology or the, the, the methodology of using that as a technique to identify those different layers, to see how they become both layered on top of each other, but also in conflict with each other, how some erase other levels of meaning. That's, I think, where you see how useful material culture studies can be as a skill of looking at that, the complexities of the world that isn't one that identifies one entirely separate world that is indigenous and one entirely um, isolated layer on top of it that might be colonial and one further layer on top of that that is doing away with both of those and is a kind of you know 20th 21st century modern none of that exists in separate in separation or in isolation uh, indeed thank you that's that's really useful uh, another maybe
0: comforting binary uh in reading the history of medicine and in the Indian Ocean world is that you have uh this contrast between uh, Colonial science or modern science versus uh so-called folk beliefs. Uh, religion, uh, occult sciences, and magic, uh, and and the way uh, medical substances are made sense of and used and contextualized within certain cultures. So um, how do these chapters tackle uh, this binary between uh, the modern science or the colonial science and supposedly its rationality and objectivity in treating these substances versus... uh, the, the local which is usually uh, labeled as traditional and uh occult and and so on
1: yeah i mean it's a it's a really powerful question and i think in in many ways the final chapter i don't know if you had look, had the chance to look at Harish Narayan rao's final chapter which tackles that really uh uh you know in, in quite a uh maybe characteristic uh, um challenging way i would say um so um he is of course a historian of medicine and um based in in anthropology as his um discipline and his chapter tackles precisely this um kind of construction i would say of two worlds one in which there is um traditional folk folk medicine or there is this kind of idea that there is a, a world in which um Uh, that exists in isolation as it were or and sometimes even a kind of timeless uh, isolation which is the conventional world or the traditional world or whichever word you want to um, uh, use and that that exists in contrast with uh, a modern irrational uh, often associated with the western world and the contrast between the two comes up in many of them many of the chapters and in many of the chapters it's Posted as a kind of conflict between power or between and that's commercial or political power or power over a labor force or power over the intellectual um ownership, the sort of ways of defining it. Um in in Harish Naraindas' chapter, it features Uh, Also, as a kind of response to the emphasis on material culture in a kind of critical way. And so, what Harish sets out to do is to, by presenting a number of vignettes at the chapter, at the start of the chapter, um, showing the different ways in which the separation is impossible between the two worlds. So, the individual responses to treatment, the individual uh, practices of the different uh, therapists that are brought to the to the foreground in his his chapter um, all struggle with that binary and all actually um, make it impossible to separate the two worlds and and um, what he is suggesting that if we focus on material culture and if we highlight material the materiality of therapeutics in other words if we focus on those substances that can be identified as a material substance and therefore gain a name and a and a process then by doing that we are focusing on on the biomedical world and we are thereby actually also dismissing the value and power of the the folk medicine or traditional medicine if you will but which is a far more complex world in which of course there are also medicinal and therapeutic treatments but the therapeutic treatments are much broader than that they form a much wider complex of practices of dietary practices of spiritual practices of routines and uh, taboos of uh, timed periods in which you must follow certain guidelines and by contrasting the material culture world with a conventional world in which those are not exclusively uh, the, the the therapeutic methods um he is kind of pushing uh, those who have studied or have looked at material culture in the volume into the world of saying you know you are all dismissing the much more complex world of traditional therapeutics and so his his voice was actually um uh, quite a critical one to say actually um you know you get a very asymmetrical production of pluralism as he says in his title um you call it pluralism by opening up all these different options but actually it's very asymmetrical and by bringing in the material culture you are actually creating that asymmetry that doesn't need to be there that doesn't actually uh that isn't part of those particular kind of um Settings, those those vignettes that he, he creates, and I think, uh, I mean, for me, it was a great pleasure working with uh, Harish Narayan Das, having somebody so senior, somebody so experienced in the field of the history of medicine, somebody so critical of uh, of the various methods that we might have used, but so willing to have his voice included in this volume as a kind of counter voice to uh, some of the other topics that we approached um I feel that that really adds something to to the volume and I think um I don't know how easy it is for for readers to pick up on the the kind of counter voice that he's offering if they've been reading you know chapter one to 12 um you know, that may come as a bit of a surprise uh, but I hope people, continue to read into chapter 13 and see this contrasting voice and see that uh, for, from an anthropological perspective, looking at the ways in which medicine works today, uh, of course, he places that in a historical perspective. Um, There are also some asymmetries that emerge out of this process. Um, I mean, you know, I have a an ongoing and very healthy and spirited uh, conversation with him where I feel that that isn't necessarily the outcome and not necessarily the gist of how the chapters have have dealt with that particular binary that you have proposed, that comforting, one of those many comforting binaries. Um, but if anyone is interested, that's the chapter to read to see um, a sort of uh, contradictory voice in the volume. Great. Yeah. Uh... Uh, Another,
0: uh, I would say, characteristic of the volume is that most of the chapters uh, center South South Asia in narrating the history of health and materiality. And as someone who is an expert on Chinese material culture, um, where do you see future directions in integrating um, Chinese uh, studies uh, of, of medicine and health and materiality with the rest of the Indian Ocean world? Given you know the the close connections uh, between Chinese materia medica uh, with the rest of the Indian Ocean worlds, some scholars have started the work on looking at how uh, Persian texts were translated into uh, Chinese, and others are looking at shipwrecks. So do you do you see other future directions in which we can explore these connections? between China with the rest of the Indian Ocean world
1: yeah absolutely I mean that's still that was my original ambition and and you know other things happened in the meantime but it's still what I want to come back to to try and and create conversations that get, get people again out of their comfortable, Regional expertise, and I think the problem with it, exactly as you just said, is the linguistic skills. It really requires people who can read a very wide range of of languages. But those people exist, and could, will hopefully continue to exist. And and they are, um, and that isn't just about reading. Let's say Sanskrit and Chinese or Persian and um, uh japanese let's say um i think there are many other ways of doing it and if we have some experts who can read all of the languages we will also have opportunities for conversations between people who read some of those languages and i think it's about opening up the geographical spaces and i think indian ocean world i think needs to take account more moves somewhat more inland perhaps so including a little bit more uh, of north asia which gets us into that very shared territory in which um you know i mean central asia i think to claim that central asia is part of the indian ocean world may be a stretch and i'm not suggesting that every ocean person also becomes somebody who does central asian studies but i think we we it, it It's a loss if we just close our eyes to the extent to which that those spatial connections existed. And that means also that the Indian Ocean world becomes blended with the Nanyang, the South China Sea and the South China Sea world. Those are not separate worlds. And those areas in which they meet, as scholars of those areas know extremely well, are blended areas in which these uh, texts and substances and merchants and consumers are part of the same world so my my aim would still be to try and bring together people who work mostly on china but are willing to look beyond and people who work mostly on you know on the persian heritage but are also willing to look more towards china or 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 south asia and and the indian ocean itself of course you know, that is already a massively uh, diverse space in which we know all sorts of agents traveled uh, who had who leave traces, who uh, are part of the landscape, who shape the coastal spaces around it. So I think these are go- conversations we need to keep having and we need to keep um being open-minded to the approaches that seem very embedded in those spaces and when i say very embedded in those spaces i mean uh, for example to in my experience quite a lot of the people who work on south asia specifically even if you encourage them to think more broadly um and i say them because clearly i'm not an expert on south asia as you uh as you <laughs> pointed out i mean i have no um to to say anything about that but i do feel that uh it goes beyond saying that's really empire if you ask somebody who works on south asia to say look beyond the boundaries and think about something that's bigger than that then they often go to empire and the agents of empire um and i think we can do better than that i think there is more to be discovered there and more to be gained from those conversations that get us outside of um the history of empire which i personally feel um you know it's it's it, i'm not suggesting it's not important but it's not the only thing that exists and for me global history is really a methodology global history is really nothing about space and nothing about the entire globe it's about looking for connections identifying where the conflicts arise within those uh sp- contested spaces and that i think is a methodology that would create a different uh spatial realm and would open up spaces for conversations that include china the chinese linguistic world or the sinophone world as well as south asia as well as the persian world and and it, you know empire may be part of that but may not be that would be my my view on that
0: yes definitely we need less of empire i guess Okay, okay, good.
1: I'm glad you agree. And lots <laughs> of in
0: connected history, or even, you know, reimagining these histories away from these uh, sorts of frameworks. And definitely the Indian Ocean world is not just a geographic container, as historians have shown. The frontiers of the Indian Ocean really extend as far as uh, the ideas, languages, the commodities, and peoples uh, who are associated with the Indian Ocean and its cultures uh, can, you know, be found Um uh, so in in working on these chapters have you came across any surprises any uh I don't know head scratching uh, moments where you were like wow I I didn't expect this or this is really interesting that you would like to share
1: ah uh, lots of them because for me I was entering into such a such a different world I mean I think um yeah I I think probably mostly I would say the the uh the the extent to which these substances traveled. I mean, you know, the the chapter on Chalmugra, for example, finding ourselves in 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 different parts of the world that I hadn't expected to travel in, and that's because if you bring a scholar uh, from New Zealand over, then, you know, a whole different space turns up. The idea that you can take bodies, convicts the bodies of convicts and think of those as actually uh, material substances that i found quite surprising i thought the ways in which um for me again as an outsider as an as an as a you know a tourist as it were or a visitor in the world of of uh south asian medicine um the idea that, that you know the role of what what is from apparently familiarly called tribal knowledge which is a term that i wasn't familiar with in using the way in which that continues to play through in today's political landscape of who owns some of these substances who owns the knowledge who how do those bits of information get uh transmitted through very different political structures there was lots of it the, the idea that you could write a whole chapter on either perfumes or soap or you know it, it 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 has been a really exciting uh, dis- voyage of discovery for me a very long way away from from chinese porcelain that's for sure
0: yeah great <clears throat> so who who do you hope will read this book and and what sort of impact would you like it to have
1: Oh, well, I hope Indian Ocean historians read it and and say and and think that they need to stretch out their geographies. I hope that historians of medicine will read it and think that they need to uh, continue to and increase their familiarity with material culture studies. I hope that historians of empire will read it and think, no, actually, we don't need to keep uh, uh, repeating uh, the, the, the the British Empire structures. Uh, I hope that some historians of China will look at it and say, oh, that's interesting. One can, as a China historian, venture out into different fields. I hope that people will read it for the variety uh, of elements in there and will recognize the work of some, some juniors, some very senior scholars, and will take away... Uh, ideas for for more research I think there is really a, a world of of um, sources uh, that can be discovered and that very interesting work can be done and some of it does require linguistic skills but some of it also is available in different uh, versions and translations that make this really interesting uh, material to work with and that the history of medicine is not um, a hermetically closed world would one one that travels uh, along global trajectories, I would say.
0: and I would add also for graduate students, the rich bibliographies of each chapter uh, are quite useful in exploring uh, the field as well. Uh, thank you so much. We've taken a lot of your time and uh, we've benefited a lot from this conversation. Um, We would like to ask you the final question, which is, uh, what are you working on now? Can you tell us about your current and future projects or what you hope to work on?
1: Well, I already hinted that I would love to work more on this, um, but I haven't quite got a plan fixed on that continues this particular plan. I'm working on a chapter right now for a volume uh, called Inland Empires, which is another challenge to the idea that empires have a very set pattern that i think the concept of empire needs to be opened up and broadened out and that various actors indigenous agents also form political structures that could be defined as empire um uh, is a productive space to work in and and i'm very pleased that it brings together scholars who work on very different spaces um uh, but including the indian ocean world and i think um uh, it, it will be an interesting study but that's just one of the chapters i've mostly been writing quite varied chapters um, and i haven't yet embarked on the new the thing that's going to occupy me for the next 10 years or so um so watch this space it'll be you know I, i'll get there quite soon i hope
0: and we hope to have you back uh, to the podcast to talk about these fascinating projects thank you so thank much you. for your time today
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Thank
0: you. And thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored with Professor Anne uh, Hritson, histories of health and materiality in the Indian ocean world, medicine, material culture, and trade between 1600 to 2000, published by Bloomsbury in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of new books in the Indian ocean world.